This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website, www.press.uchicago.edu. Hello, and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Chris Gondak, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Stephen Shapin about his new book, The Scientific Life, A Moral History of a Late Modern Vocation. Stephen Shapin is the Franklin L. Ford Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. He's the author of A Social History of Truth and The Scientific Revolution, both published by the University of Chicago Press. He's also written for The New Yorker and is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books. Stephen Chapin, thanks for taking time to talk to the Chicago Audio Works today. Glad to. So if I were a scientist in early 20th century America and I went to a dinner party of financiers and industrialists, what are some of the assumptions the guest might have made about me? Well, you'd be pretty unlikely to go to a dinner party with industrialists and financiers. Uh, But if you did, if you were that lucky you'd probably find the industrialists um, thinking that you were a pretty useless person <laughs> of no material interest to what they were, were doing. Uh, now, claims that science was a materially useful activity had been made for a very long time. They'd been made at least from the, the 17th century onwards. But for the most part, they really weren't believed by... Um, merchants and and manufacturers. Uh, But by the end of the 19th, early 20th century, I don't think there'd be very many industrials or financiers who would be much interested in what was happening in um, the scientific labs of uh, of universities. As a matter of fact, they probably wouldn't be very interested in what was happening in, in universities because at the time, and especially in America, universities were much more associated with their teaching functions and with the development of character and not very much with research at all. So they wouldn't necessarily associate uh, you as uh, a professor with, uh, with, with research. And that was changing at the end of the 19th century, and especially with the introduction into the United States of a more German model of research as being integral to the identity of the university. But it, that change was, was really quite gradual in American institutions of higher education. And, and for that and other reasons, I don't think your financier or your industrialists at the turn of the 19th and 20th century would, would find what you were up to um, in principle useful to them. If I were that scientist and invited to that party, would I be interested in trying to find somebody who would give me money? Well, you might well be. Um, the sources, the the channels for for uh, delivering large sums of state money to academic research are substantially uh, a product of the post-World War II years. The National Science Foundation itself was founded in, in, in 1950. Uh, you would be interested, if you were in fact interested in doing research, in any sources of funding that you could that you could find. Typical research might be going to your dean and asking for a couple hundred bucks to do a tabletop experiment. And if you could get uh, support for research from industry, of course you'd be interested in it. 
that model that you talked about in the first answer of uh, the German research university coming to the United States. I, before then, there was, as you talked about, colleges and universities were really seen as kind of places to develop character. And scientists back then were primarily known as natural philosophers. Was it more than just a change in nomenclature when natural philosophers decided to become scientists or started to be named scientists? Well, I think it was. The, the word scientist was itself made up around about 1840 in England, but it wasn't routinely applied to those doing inquiry into natural phenomena and natural processes really into the early 20th century. And, and here, an historical distinction is really quite, quite relevant to understanding these changes. The distinction that was common in the early modern period, say around the 17th century, that is interesting is that between a natural philosopher and uh, a kind of person that was then called a mathematician, and you have to understand this includes things like practical mathematics, like surveying, fortification, navigation of that sort. Now, the natural philosopher is someone who's interested in the real causal structure of nature, what really exists in the world. But the person who was called the mathematician would be mainly interested in documenting natural regularities so that you could predict and control natural phenomena. That's to say the mathematician of the early modern period translates roughly into the category of the engineer today. And I think around the time that the word scientist became routinely used to refer to people doing inquiry into nature, you're beginning to see a shift which is still going on today between science as inquiry into the real causal structure of nature, a philosophical enterprise in that sense, towards an enterprise which is more and more geared to the prediction, control, and manipulation of natural phenomena. Uh, and that, that change is happening in an accelerating way around the turn of the 19th and 20th century and continues on to the, the present. The other thing to, to mention, around the time that scientist becomes a routine designation for people doing inquiry into nature, Science really, for the first time, is becoming a significant job for fairly large numbers of people. A number of people in the 17th, 18th, even into the 19th century, who are paid to do a job of natural inquiry is really, really very small. And it becomes an acceleratingly large number of people from the turn of the 20th century to the turn of, uh, of, uh, of this century. And so the designation scientist picks out someone who is more and more uh, geared towards the prediction, control, and manipulation of natural phenomena. And it also picks out someone who is doing a job of work in investigating natural phenomena. This industrialization that you're talking about, wasn't there also a background to scientists before this industrialization took place that they were in a way a moral other because they were I want to say, subsumed in their quest for truth. And once one begins industrialization, how were industries and projects able to, or did they need to, I guess, remove that kind of moral superiority from the scientists in order to bring them into the industrial fold? Well, let's first start with the idea of moral superiority, because definitely around the middle part of the 20th century, you begin getting from both within the scientific community and from commentators on the scientific community, the, the stipulation that the scientist was a person just like anybody else, 
that there was no that scientists were not by nature geniuses and they were not they were not morally different from the common run uh, of humankind but the sensibility has become so much a, a taken for granted now that it's it's sometimes difficult to appreciate how it could be believed otherwise but when the the, the scientist is studying god's creation god's book of nature uh, as it was said the possibility was that that kind of study would morally morally uplift those that were doing it so the scientist might be different because he typically he was regarded as a genius might be regarded as different because he typically he was inspired by god and might be regarded as morally superior because what he was studying was god's book of, of nature so part of the story that leads us into this insistence that the scientist is pretty much the same as anyone else is a story about secularization. When it's accepted that nature is not God's second book, that capacity of moral uplift uh, similarly goes away. There's another part of the story, and that, that does take us into the period of the Second World War and indeed the Cold War, and this is a period when the, the state, uh, in America especially, but elsewhere, realizes that scientists are very useful sorts of people, it needs large numbers of them. And so there's quite a concerted and explicit effort to normalize the image of the scientist. A big effort is made uh, to do that. The state feels that it needs more of these people, the state feels that it needs to be understood that you don't have to be a genius to do scientific work. And the state wants it understood there is no reason to fear the scientist as morally worse than anyone else. And this, of course, in the aftermath of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Stephen Shapin in just a moment. The Scientific Life, A Moral History of a Late Modern Vocation by Stephen Shapin is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features, and of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. The Press is also the publisher of the Chicago Manual of Style, which can be found online at www.chicagomanualofstyle.org. I'm back with Stephen Shapin talking about his book, The Scientific Life, A Moral History of the Late Modern Vocation. Uh, you were talking about uh, the Cold War and the normalization of scientists as working in groups and organizations and kind of the removal of kind of a moral halo, and those are my words, about the work they do. And, but within that normalization, wasn't there also a growing realization that scientists, although they had no special moral claim on the work they were doing, were also actually becoming very powerful? And was their reaction to this increasing realization of the power of science in the mid-20th century? Yeah. And this is, this is a story, although one can and should tell a story about the power of scientists has manifest um, for, for quite a long time, but certainly in what's been called the chemist's war, the first world war, and the role, for example, of scientists in the creation and use of poison gas and submarines and means of military communication. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki really changed the nature of the perception profoundly. And scientists, uh, including scientists that heretofore had been regarded as pretty useless chaps were uh, 
were understood to be the sources of enormous potential power that the the trick as it were of of uh, the Manhattan project to build the atomic bomb might be turned again and again and again and that one didn't necessarily know from which science these spectacularly useful outcomes necessary for the the state and for industry from what sources they might come so physicists were the first beneficiaries of the enormous scaling up of support of science after the Second World War, but eventually a, a wide range of, of scientists be, began to benefit from this support. And the perception got in, institutionalized that uh, if you supported all kinds of science, you would, in one way or another, perhaps unpredictable, get outcomes that were desired by the state, especially the military and by industry. It was that unpredictability that led to the second, the last two chapters of your book, when you begin to talk about the era of scientific entrepreneurship, and you really start in California in the 1970s, was it that growing sense after, say, World War II that people didn't really know where the next great idea was going to come from that in a way led to the development of what you talk about in scientific entrepreneurship? I, I, th- I think uh, there's, there's a sense in which the, 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 the changing role of of um, science and industry, the changing nature of um, industrial research uh, changed the nature of perception quite a lot. Although the research labs of the early part of the 20th century and the big electrical, chemical, photographic, and, and pharmaceutical companies built the uncertainty of research into a corporate model, the development from the 19th 70s especially, of small, agile, entrepreneurial companies led to what I, I call a, a kind of radical uncertainty, not just about scientific agendas, but about the, the organizational form of science in startup biotech, in electronics, in, in, in uh, wireless companies of that sort. Um, the questions we've raised, uh, how do you organize research in a, an entrepreneurial environment like this? How do you motivate people? Who leads? What's the nature of authority? All of these things are, are so uncertain in the entrepreneurial environment of small startup companies that the importance of familiar people, the the, the importance of, of, of leadership, the importance of embodied authority becomes greater and greater. So in other words, the greater the uncertainty about what we are going to do in this organization, the greater the importance of uh, what Max Weber, the sociologist, called charismatic authority. If you have a, an organization characterized by, by great routine, uh, you can embody in, in a rule book what's going to be done, when it's going to be done, and how it's going to be done. And and Max Weber described the characteristic gesture of of charisma as, uh, it is written, but I say to you. But if you look at an agile entrepreneurial um, environment like startup biotech, you would say, it is not even written, but I say to you. In other words, a single person typically embodies and instantiates what the organization is about, what its goals are, what its work rhythms are, uh, what a structure of motivation and reward might be. 
So I, I think the role of familiar people, of charismatic authority, of of, um, of the recognized virtues of individuals actually becomes greater and greater in an entrepreneurial environment. So is there a difference between the vocation of science from, say, the 17th century to what one might see in the early 21st century? In many obvious ways, it has changed. The scientist of the 17th century uh, was typically an amateur, not expecting to do a job of work that was remunerated. The scientist of the early 20th century is typically, as a matter of fact, doing a job of work for which he or she expects to be remunerated. That's changed, and that's changed fundamentally. Within entrepreneurial science, the expectation that one might possibly, with luck, with quite a lot of luck, make quite a lot of money, is a new thing. That's not an expectation that would one have, the natural philosopher of the 17th century uh, would have. But I don't think that the science of the early 21st century is that dissimilar to the science of the 17th century, and that both in sorts of individual doing a job of inquiry are also characterized by the notion of, of vocation. They want to understand what the world is like. They want to understand what makes it work. They want to understand the techniques that one can use to, to investigate it. And money is not a sufficient answer to what motivates the, the scientist of the, of the early 21st century, nor was it an interesting answer to what motivates the scientist of the 17th century. Stephen Shapin, the author of The Scientific Life, A Moral History of a Late Modern Vocation. Thanks for talking to the Chicago Audio Works today. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. The email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008. The University of Chicago. All rights reserved.